When is the restoration coming to Israel? This was the question upon every seriously religious Jew at the time when John the Baptist and Jesus arrived upon the scene of history. Hence, it is not surprising that the disciples knew and held to the popular, the popular viewpoint about the Jewish expectations of the day when Israel as a nation would be triumphant over all their enemies who had invaded and inhabited their sacred land. Well, as our sovereign God decrees and works out all things for the glorification of his son, for the glorification of the church and his people, our God is about to design the future under his perfect will and not the misinterpretation of the Jewish leaders projecting the future according to their will. Oh, congregation, as we mentioned in a previous message, it is imperative not to overlook our sovereign God's perfect design of his son's geographical movement to Jerusalem, the path that he is now taking as he comes to Caesarea Philippi, predominantly Gentile country and not Jewish country. Yes, they are in the midst of the capital that bears tribute to Augustus Caesar, where Herod Philip had now ruled, where Peter made his confession that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah. It is from here that Jesus enters into intensive training of the disciples as his future apostles in which the Messiah, the message of the Son of Man, in blessing and judgment, will go to the world. It is not limited to, nor was it ever meant to be limited to, the borders of Israel. By sovereign design, Jesus is going to slam the misinterpretation that the Messiah comes to triumph over the occupation of the Roman government, restoring the land to Israel. So let us investigate more closely the discussion here about the restoration of Israel. Well, as Peter, James, and John are coming down off the mountain after Jesus' transfiguration, the disciples ask Jesus a question. Why does the scribe say that First, Elijah must come, verse 11 of our text in Mark. Obviously, what they just witnessed on the mountain with the appearance of Elijah and his sudden disappearance, his sudden departure does not seem to match. It doesn't seem to match at all what the Jewish scribes were teaching. If Jesus is the Christ... If Jesus is the Messiah, if he is the Son of God, 
as they have just actually heard from, their, from his father in heaven, then why did Elijah just appear to them and to repeat, just suddenly disappear, disappear? After all, the scribes did not witness Elijah on the mountain. The people in Israel did not witness what just occurred on the mountain. If Elijah is to be clear, is to clearly appear to the religious leaders and to the people of Israel prior to the coming of the Messiah, then no one but us, Peter, James, and John, have seen him. So what's going on here? What's going on here? The disciples are confused over what the scribes are teaching and what they just saw. They have seen Elijah privately, but they have not seen Elijah walk throughout the land of Israel among her people. Specifically, they have not witnessed Elijah interacting with the scribes or the Jewish establishment and intermixing with the common people of Israel. Furthermore, keep in mind that still in the back of the minds of the disciples is the interpretation of the Jewish leaders that was pervasive in the psyche of the children of Israel. That is, the coming of Elijah and the Messiah would bring the total restoration of the borders of Israel out of the hands of any foreign intruder. If there is any question there's any question about the Jewish incorrect interpretation of Israel being in the minds of the disciples, we receive confirmation of this incorrect view after, after the resurrection, just prior to the ascension. Look at Acts 1.6. Acts 1.6, the apostles and Jesus have come together and notice closely what they ask. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Notice care clearly, the apostles still have in their mind what has been taught by the Jewish religious establishment concerning the coming of the Messiah, the cleansing and restoration of the borders of Israel from every foreign invader and occupant. The apostles now know that Jesus is definitely the Messiah, the Christ, the prophecy from the lips of Jesus about himself as we have drilled 
message after message recently in 831 has now become true. He went to Jerusalem. He suffered. He was rejected by the Jewish Sanhedrin, was killed, and he rose from the dead. So with this fulfilled, they are now asking whether this is now the time. Is this the time when the Messiah will restore ethnic Israel and her borders? Within, herein Jesus provides further training and instruction of his apostles prior to his ascension. Yes, Jesus is still teaching He's still clarifying the meaning of the kingdom and the gospel to his hand-picked apostles. Christ is basically telling them that it is none of their business to know the times and the seasons when such things will occur. The future, the future design of such things are in the hands of the Father in heaven and his authority. The Father in heaven has already fixed the future, already fixed providentially the future. Hence, Jesus proceeds to point out that the Father has presently designed for what the Father presently has designed for the apostles' task. This is what demands the attention of the apostles. This is what they should be attentive to. They will receive the power of the Holy Spirit and they will be the witnesses of the good news found in Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Chapter 1, verse 8. If you ever read Acts, if you want, and if you are planning on doing a study of the book of Acts, that's the theme of the book of Acts, 1-8. That's why Acts does not end with Paul's death. It ends with the gospel in Rome. It's gone to the end of the earth at that time. Keep that in mind. The theme of Acts is set by Christ, by Christ in his words. Yes, the gospel message is going out beyond, beyond the borders of Israel, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. There is absolutely nothing here about the restoration of ethnic Israel within their own borders. The Jewish religious establishment refused to recognize and bow before Jesus as the Messiah, and hence their interpretation of the coming of the Messiah was wrong. 
but they were also wrong about what the Messiah would bring with respect to the geographical location of Israel. The message of salvation in the Messiah, Messiah is for the entire globe, not just Israel. The entire globe. So is Jesus restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? Not even close. <laughs> Not even close. Rather, behold this astounding, astounding event that is before you in the text in Acts. Christ ascends visibly out of their presence to the right hand of the Father where he reigns until his father puts all his enemies under his feet. That's the message of the New Testament concerning where Christ reigns and where he is and what's going on right now. And that is revealed to Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 25. And it is prophesied in the psalmist, in that psalm that is quoted the most in the New Testament, Psalm 110, verse 1. Okay, we got this. <laughs> we got this. In the book of Acts, its author, Luke, has given what the activity of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit is doing between Christ's resurrection and his return. The Father is directing what he has fixed by his authority to occur for the rest of human history. The Son is at the right hand of his Father, interceding for us, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. That's what he is doing and reigning as the Father subjects all his enemies under his feet. And the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is taking the good news into the whole world, performing the ministry of the gospel through his instruments in the church to preach Christ's redemption as the Spirit applies the wonderful benefits found in Christ to all those whom the Father has fixed from eternity to be saved. Now, let us return to Christ's response to Peter, James, and John about the teaching of the scribes saying that Elijah must come first in Mark 9, 11. Jesus said, Elijah does come first to restore all things, verse 12. We note that Mark uses the term, this term restore, three times in his gospel. First, when Jesus restores the man's withered hand 
to full use in chapter 3, verse 5. Second, when Jesus restores the blind man's eyes to complete clear vision, chapter 8, verse 25. And here in 9.12, when Elijah initiates the complete restoration of all things. Now the Greek is very helpful here in terms of the time frame of what Jesus is talking about. As Jesus speaks To the three disciples, Jesus claims strongly that Elijah does come first to restore all things. And even more significantly, with respect to the statement of the scribes, Jesus claims that Elijah has already come. Already come. The final restoration of all things has begun. The final benefits of God's kingdom has already begun. A withered hand functions as being completely restored. Blind eyes function as being completely restored to be able to see clearly. The second Elijah, John the Baptist, has begun this complete and final restoration of all things. But wait a second, Pastor Bill. Wait a second, Pastor Bill. How can Jesus speak of the complete and final restoration of all things, already starting with John the Baptist? Look closely. Look closely to the sequences of Jesus' response. You call this restoration? You call this restoration? Immediately Jesus tells these disciples that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. Verse 12. If that's not enough, if that's not enough, Jesus tells the three disciples That this Elijah, yes, John the Baptist, who has already come as the beginning, as the beginning of the final restoration of all things. Guess what happened to him? Guess what happened to him? He has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased. Verse 13. Yes, Jesus is referring to the fact that Herod Antipas had the Baptist imprisoned and then beheaded for exposing his vile sin of adultery and refusing to repent of such thing. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Congregation, think hard here. Stay with me. Try to place yourself as a first century Jew in this text 
with the expectations of Elijah and the Messiah and ethnic Israel in her land. How in the world is this beginning of the complete and final restoration of all things? Jesus has just been revealed in final glory in chapter 9, 2 through 8, which will engulf the final restoration of all things. And yet he is telling us that restoration is intricately connected to John the Baptist being beheaded. Herod did whatever he pleased with him. And that Jesus himself will suffer and be treated with contempt, pointing the disciples back to 831. He will suffer, be rejected by the Jewish Sanhedrin, killed, and after three days be raised from the dead. How is this the restoration of anything, let alone all things? Congregation, take a deep breath and pause. I might join you. <laughs> truly, truly enter the words and wisdom of our Savior here. If you miss it, you are going to miss the essence of the gospel which Jesus is placing before you. Remember? Do you remember the context here? Do you remember what the Father has said? Listen to him. Let me ask you, are you listening to Christ? Jesus is bringing the messianic secret into the life of John the Baptist. In his discussion with these disciples, Peter, James, and John need to be trained. They need to be taught what the complete and final restoration of all things really means by Jesus' own and true interpretation of God's final kingdom, not by the incorrect and wrong interpretation of the scribes in which Jesus's viewpoint does not fit. They crucified him. They beheaded John. Does not Are you listening? God turns the human, the earthly view of restoration, upside down, including most seriously the Jews looking for the restoration of ethnic national Israel within her borders, cleansed from all Gentile contamination. 
the complete and final restoration of all things begins with suffering and death. There is no final and glorious restoration without suffering, death, and humiliation. Please, please, congregation, open your hearts to grasp this. The words of Jesus to these disciples are really focusing upon his own person and not John the Baptist. In fact, the only way, the only way that the final and complete restoration of all things can begin is if the Baptist takes on the same posture as the Son of Man concerning his own purpose and importance for initiating the coming of the kingdom of God. John the Baptist must take on the pattern of Christ. That is suffering. If he is going to have anything to do with preparing the way of the Lord's entrance into the history of redemption to save sinners. The Baptist is not the Christ, but his life takes on a crucial element of Jesus' life as his forerunner. John's life only has meaning as he encompasses the pattern of Jesus' suffering as his forerunner. In this way, John is the Elijah who ushers in the complete and final restoration of all things. All things, not just ethnic Israel. John's position in history has importance or relevance only in Christ. Turning that around, we can say John's position in history has no importance or relevance unless he is the forerunner to Jesus. Jesus must suffer, and thus John must suffer. In a fallen world, the hand is withered to be restored. The eye is blind to be restored. The path to redeem a fallen world must be the path that will purge sin and the curse of death. The path in a fallen world needs reconciliation with a perfect creator who suffers for sin unto death itself. That is the path of your precious Savior. He says, He says it is clearly before us 
in his words about Elijah and himself. Jesus is teaching the apostles, the disciples here, if they are, willing, are, they, if they are truly willing to listen, that the heart and the soul of understanding the complete and final restoration of all things is this. Suffering, humiliation, precedes glory. Chapter 8, verse 31, precedes chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Suffering precedes glory. There is no exaltation, none, no exaltation without suffering. If you love Christ, if you love Christ, if you are living Christ's imperative, in Mark's gospel of repentance and embracing Jesus by faith, resting alone upon his righteousness for your salvation as a fallen creature in a fallen world, then you must grasp the pattern of your life of union with Christ. And that pattern in your life of union with Christ is suffering, humiliation, preceding glory. There is no exaltation without suffering. This is the life of the true believer in Christ. This is the life of the true church of Jesus Christ. Even, even after Christ's resurrection and prior to Christ's ascension, Jesus must still teach his apostles further to connect the dots. Get rid Get rid of this idea of the scribe's view of the restoration of ethnic Israel and proceed, proceed by the Holy Spirit into all the world with the good news. The pattern is set as the body of Christ lives in the complete final restoration of all things. Yes, the pattern is set. Suffering, humiliation precedes glory. There is no exaltation without suffering. Look, look candidly into your own heart this morning. Are you willing to live this path, this life, for the sake 
of Christ and his gospel. Let's pray for help. Oh, our Heavenly Father, through what Christ has accomplished for us in his death and resurrection, may the Holy Spirit hold us up, strengthen us, for this pattern in which we live in this world. It is not easy. It is difficult. Not only physically, but also spiritually. But we ask, O Lord, that thy spirit would be so rich in each one of us to enable us to understand the fullness of the presence of Christ within us, that we, we are able to walk the path, suffering unto exaltation. We thank thee for the picture, and not only the picture, but the reality of that pattern in thy son, in which was resembled and mapped out even in John the Baptist. The restoration of all things has begun. Let us rejoice and let us be content with such a marvelous salvation in Christ Jesus. Amen.